Tonight's reading is from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, starting verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marta, for reading uh, that passage. Uh, we are back in 1 Timothy, as you can tell, and about to dive into uh, some of the more contentious parts, I guess, of the whole Bible. But if we're not exactly 100% agreed on what Paul is saying or how this passage relates uh, to our own situation, um, I hope by now we are clear why Paul has written uh, this letter. Um, chapter 3, uh, Paul explains that he's writing to his son in the faith, uh, Timothy, to instruct him uh, how to put things in order uh, in the church in Ephesus so that it would know how to conduct itself uh, as God's household, which is the, the church of the living God, um, the, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And, and this evening, I think Paul is particularly homing in um, on what should and shouldn't be happening uh, as the church gathers for, for worship. And uh, having just uh, heard our passage read uh, very well from Martha, I imagine there are a whole load of questions uh, uh, worrying about in our heads. Well, this is God's word, and we need God's Holy Spirit to help us as we seek to understand what he wants to say to us. Let's pray uh, now. Let's pray. Father, we do come often to your word full of assumptions and attitudes that can uh, result in us... Um, sitting over your word rather than humbly sitting under it. So uh, please give us that humility, give us your wisdom, we pray, that we might know how we should conduct ourselves as your church. And we ask this for our good and flourishing and for your honour and glory. Amen. Well, we ended then last week with Paul giving Timothy his marching orders, urging him to, to battle with wrong teaching in the church and confront those who are spreading it uh, for the safeguarding of God's 
family in Ephesus. And I was very struck last week by Ed's use of that image of the wreckers uh, on the Cornish coast, uh, those who would create those sort of false lights and draw passing ships onto the rocks. It's a dreadful act, um, a criminal act that was punishable by death. Well, for Timothy, the need to act to confront and stop this false teaching uh, was vital, even if every fibre perhaps in his body would have been wanting not to do that, to duck the challenge. But the stakes could not be higher, and the need to act non-negotiable. And as Paul, I think, teaches how the church is to conduct itself in the light of false teaching, I wonder whether the start of chapter 2 is a bit of a surprise. Verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for people, for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This might not be the controversial part of our letter, but there's wisdom here and encouragement, I think, uh, for us in the midst of a battle uh, for gospel truth. So first, here's my first point. Uh, Public worship should include prayers for secular leaders uh, for the advance of the gospel. I guess when we are faced with controversy or uh, false teaching, and we get that sort of battle mentality. One of the dangers, I guess, is that we often become inward-looking. But I think Paul's urging Timothy and encouraging us uh, to remain outward-looking, to be thinking about how we might continue to hold out the gospel uh, to a desperately needy world. And that orientation is to be reflected in what we pray for as we gather. So for us, I take it means that we should be uh, praying for those who have responsibility over our town, uh, indeed our nation. It's appropriate this weekend, isn't it? Think about that. Uh, Praying that they might be saved, God save the king, and that under their leadership we can get on with our own calling to live lives, those quiet, holy, godly lives that advance the gospel. Of course, we think about what context Paul was writing these words into, that would have involved praying for some pretty corrupt leaders, some very unlikely converts. Perhaps even as Timothy urged the Christians in Ephesus to pray for their civic leaders, perhaps their emperor, they might have thought, really? What's the chances that they could be saved? Maybe it seemed like a crazy thing to do. Well, history tells us that uh, such prayers were indeed answered on occasions. There were emperors who were converted and whose governance opened up new opportunities for the spread and advance of the gospel. But I think Paul's words not only are directed at the conversion of civic leaders, he's urging us to pray that they would exercise their God-given leadership and authority wisely in society. That they would order things well, if you like, so that we might be able to Uh, be free to get on with our lives, those say quiet lives, peaceful lives, in all godliness and holiness. And where God's order and delegated authority is exercised well in society, and we'll see later on in the church too, there is freedom, there is flourishing that takes place as we align ourselves uh, with God's blueprints for us and his world. Of course, I can kind of pray for uh, leaders, civic leaders, just purely out of self-interest. I'd like a quiet life, a comfortable life, 
free from any opposition or discomfort. But I don't think uh, Paul's version of a quiet life is primarily about his own comforts. No, I think Paul's desire is for the advance of the gospel. He wants the message to ring out, to be unimpeded, convinced that there is no other message that can reconnect men and women to their creator, no other mediator other than Jesus who can reconcile a sinful world uh, with the God it has rejected. Indeed, verse 6, Jesus is the one who gave up his life as a ransom for all, which means there is no one beyond his reach, including Rishi Sunak, uh, Sir Keir Starmer, uh, even Vladimir Putin. Well, I understand why some of us had said to me recently, look, aren't we just getting rather obsessed about the Church of England on all these uh, controversies and debates? Can't we just get on with the job in hand? And I hope that if you are one of those people who's frustrated, I am sometimes too, uh, I guess there's encouragement here for us, isn't there, uh, not to ignore our calling. Uh, how tragic if we were to spend all our time defending the gospel and we forgot to, to spread the gospel and to proclaim it to a lost and needy world. So we pray. We pray for our leaders. But secondly, too, uh, public worship should, be, uh, should avoid those things that distract us from God's worship uh, and from that which uh, encourages a growing knowledge of the truth. Let me read again from verse 8. Therefore, I want men, uh, the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Here, I guess, we start to feel some of the discomforts, perhaps, as Paul directs these instructions first to men and then uh, to women. Um, I guess this would have challenged the Ephesian culture quite significantly as it challenges ours. So first, Paul urges the men to lift up holy hands without anger or disputing, and then urges women to dress modestly and decently and with propriety. I can hear some people say, well, here's a Paul falling into the gender uh, stereotyping that we sometimes see in our culture. But I think these specific instructions are spoken in a context where those issues were specific to Ephesus. And the application, I think, cross, cuts across gender as we apply these words to ourselves. Well, it does seem, doesn't it, that there were those who were devoting themselves to endless myths and genealogies, focusing on things that were damaging the, the church's unity and discouraging a focus on those things that would encourage a knowledge of the truth. And in terms of those uh, Paul specifically names in this letter, it seems that the, the men were largely uh, proving a huge distraction in their endless debating and arguing. And so the command to stop arguing and to start praying is here specifically uh, directed towards the men. And in essence, Paul says, when we gather through Jesus the mediator, there should be clean hands that were lifted up in prayer. Not hands raised in finger wagging and dissension, but hands that unite God's people in prayer and in the truth. Well, I've certainly experienced services and prayer meetings in other churches where uh, those praying have used the opportunity to pray as a chance to get on their soapboxes, uh, to push particular agendas that have been often hugely distracting, uh, divisive and even self-advancing. 
Now, Paul isn't saying, I think, that women shouldn't pray or that public prayer is exclusively the domain of men. We'll see that later. But he's acknowledging the temptations that men were particularly falling into, and maybe men particularly do fall into generally. Um, And so having called out those men, he goes on to call out some of the women who are also proving a distraction in public worship, in this instance by their clothes and attire. Uh, Perhaps it was the expense of their clothes that was causing a stir. Uh, Perhaps it was the issue of immodesty that was proving a distraction. But have expressed the desire to look good, maybe, to to be noticed, Uh, perhaps not so much to impress the men, but to look good in comparison with other women in the church, distracted them and the church from God's worship as it replaced replaced that focus away, away from God onto themselves. And Paul says, rather than going with the culture, here's an opportunity to be countercultural. That emphasis on what Paul calls appropriate and enduring beauty. That focuses on good deeds rather than great clothes. Uh, that encourages worship rather than distracts. That is sacrificial and, and humble so that the spotlight falls on Jesus and his loveliness and his beauty. I don't think Paul is saying it's wrong to wear earrings or have plaits. It's more an issue of focus, I think, and culture that where we take up all our time and energy on ourselves, on our rights, perhaps, in a way that ignores uh, the spiritual well-being of others, takes their eyes off the Lord Jesus. And I think Paul does imply that it would be tragic if our gatherings, which were meant to be a focus on God, and on Jesus, honouring him were actually ones where we had our eyes drawn away uh, and therefore meetings that are much less than they should be or could be. Well, third and perhaps most challenging of all, uh, church family gatherings should reflect God's created order in regard to teaching authority. Let me read these verses again. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Well, these uh, verses have become, as you can imagine, a huge storm centre. But I think it's worth saying just a couple of things before we launch into this part of the passage. Uh, First, the issue of roles within the church is a sensitive one. And I'm aware that that, uh, where God's word appears to be restrictive when it comes to the the responsibilities and roles of women, uh, we can read it wrongly, I think, as a comment on their value, uh, importance or ability. But I hope before we're done, we'll see that's not the case. Uh, Second, this is a place where Bible-believing Christians do disagree. And so we need to discuss and perhaps disagree lovingly and respectfully and pray for those kind of gospel-shaped relationships that are strong enough to do that well. Uh, Third, uh, our own church articles warn us against uh, teaching anything that's contrary uh, to God's word, but also teaching one part of Scripture in a way that denies another. That's a wise principle, I think, here as we come to these verses. 
And, th- and finally, we need to recognize that God's word will always challenge us. Um, uh, it will challenge uh, the culture that we have, uh, the values often that we adopt. And if we're not challenged by these words, then probably we haven't understood, I think, what Paul is saying, whatever position we take on these verses. So what are we to make of Paul's words here? How are we to respond to this part of God's word? Well, I'm sure these verses have always presented some kind of challenge to Christians, perhaps more today when our culture tends to equate role with value and worth. See, when someone says we can't do something, we tend to hear that to mean we are less valuable, less important. It's one of those issues, I think, why our culture is so strong on the, on, the, on the issue of rights. By denying someone a right, we instinctively assume that we're saying something negative or demeaning about that person. But this connection between role and value is not a connection the Bible makes. Indeed, it's very clear that the Bible does affirm that men and women are equal in value, uh, honour and dignity and worth, uh, both when it comes to creation, because both men and women are made in God's image, but also equal in terms of salvation, both given the same access to God through that one mediator, Jesus Christ, and have equal status in Christ. But within that equality, the Bible teaches difference in role, I think, and responsibility. Of course, it probably should be said that this affirmation of equality and of value and worth profoundly challenged the Jewish and Gentile culture in which Paul was writing. And of course, we see that equality, I think, wonderfully showcased in Jesus' own attitudes towards women, which was never patronising, dismissive, or, uh, but was consistently respectful, honouring and affirming. But as we've also seen, it is possible to have equal status and value and yet exercise different roles. We've seen that as we've looked more recently at the Trinity. And here I think Paul affirms that same pattern within the church. So Paul says that women should learn in quietness and full uh, submission. I take that to mean that Paul is insisting that church gatherings should be a place of learning for women as well as men. He's not adopting that kind of condescending attitude that may well have been prevalent in Paul's day, that women uh, were too weak-minded to to be taught, or that God's truth was too complicated for them. No, Paul's focus rather seems to be homing on the attitude in which women are to learn and grow. They are to do so in quietness and submission. And the idea of quietness is repeated again in verse 12. Now, I don't think we can assume that, as some Christians have done, that women should not speak in public worship as it gathers. For a start, that will contradict what Paul says elsewhere. We'll see that in a moment. But Paul has used that same word, same word quiet already in our passage where he's urged all of us to live peaceful and quiet lives. And that clearly doesn't mean we should live our lives without talking or in silence. I think here the word quiet is more an attitude word. Perhaps the word peaceableness gets closer to the meaning. And a submission, I think, here speaks of a need to be humble a posture for learning that is humble and deferential. Now, of course, whether we're men or women, our attitude to learning and being taught should be marked, shouldn't it, by that kind of attitude. But I think we was, but as I think we're about to see, for women, that humility is to be reflected in their acknowledging too the way that God has ordered His church 
and place the authoritative teaching that is to direct the church family in the hands of male leadership. Well, in verse 12, I think Paul is affirming God's design and order for his church. Again, Paul underlines the attitude in which women are to learn. But now he goes on to include a restriction. They are not to teach and to assume authority that undermines that order that God has established. And to clarify what that that does mean, we do have to put these words alongside other passages that speak to the subject. So elsewhere in Scripture, indeed, we know from Paul's own writing that women prayed and prophesied in public and indeed contributed in significant ways when the church gathered. We also know, don't we, that uh, the New Testament is full of many mutual commands, things that we are to do as church to one another, including teaching and instructing and encouraging, uh, and where there are no limitations, I think, where it comes to gender. So Paul can't be commanding a blanket ban on women teaching here. And we also know that Paul worked alongside a number of key women uh, he describes as as co-workers, fellow workers with him in ministry. People like Yoya and Syntyche, who were, according to Paul, those who had contended at his side for the sake of the gospel. And I imagine that that may well have included a teaching element uh, to that contending. So I take it to mean that churches that take the most restrictive readings of these verses, which require women to stay away from any spiritual roles that involve teaching and instruction, actually fail to do justice to the wider teaching of Scripture on the subject. Now, I think the key understanding to this verse is the way in which Paul, uh, I think, connects teaching and authority uh, in this uh, passage. Paul, in other words, is not denying women the opportunity to teach or even to lead in areas of the church's life. But I think he is saying that the role of authoritative teaching that goes on within the local church is a role that is given uh, to men. And this is why I think that our passage ending at verse 15 is slightly unhelpful. As Paul goes on to describe the appointment of overseers and elders, those who have to be able to teach, and who are, through that role, um, that includes teaching, to lead the church. And Paul makes clear in in chapter 3 that that specific responsibility is to be entrusted uh, to men. Indeed, interestingly, men who lead in this way in the church are to show their suitability to lead uh, the church by demonstrating where appropriate their leadership of their own families. In other words, leadership over the family household, which we've seen is a a role that is given to men, uh, as we saw a few Thursday evenings ago, Uh, is connected in some way uh, to the authoritative leadership that is to be exercised in God's family, the church. And we also saw that in both instances, that leadership is never to be a self-serving leadership, but a self-giving one, exercised and shaped around uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his model of leadership, self-giving, sacrificial service. Well, whatever we, wherever we exercise leadership as men or women, I wonder if we seek it out in order that we can use it for ourselves or for God's people. Whether we pour ourselves out for our own interests or we pour ourselves out like Jesus did. Whether we're seeking status, influence, or as Jesus shows us, seeking to serve. Well, I know that there are those who strongly argue against 
male leadership, both in the family and in the church. And here, when it comes to God's household, the church, some have argued that what Paul's saying here is just specific to uh, Paul's time or to the situation in Ephesus. But do notice how Paul goes on to argue for that design and order. Do you see how he earths it, not in his immediate situation, but in creation itself? Look down at verse 13. For or because uh, Adam was formed first, then Eve. You see, Adam being created first is taken to indicate leadership and responsibility in some way. Now, Paul doesn't spell that out in detail here or unpack it. He does elsewhere, but here he simply affirms it. And then he goes on in verse 14. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman that was deceived and became a sinner. Perhaps at this point, uh, the warning lights on our theological dashboards are flashing red. Uh, But again, we need to tread very carefully here. Paul is not, I think, suggesting that Eve was more gullible than Adam um, and therefore should not teach in an authoritative way. I've heard that argument made. Now, now elsewhere in Scripture, Eve is used as a warning both for men and women. In other words, men are just as capable of being deceived as women. And I don't think Paul is suggesting that the fall was all Eve's fault. Again, Scripture elsewhere will equally lay the blame for the fall at Adam's door and highlight his disobedience. Can I think what Paul is doing is looking back at stuff that we look back at um, just recently on a Thursday evening, God's order of creation. Remember how God created this order? Uh, God, um, the one who has ultimate authority, and then giving authority to human beings, to men and women, to govern creation. But even within Uh, that relationship of Adam and Eve, God giving Adam a particular leadership responsibility. And if you remember how the fall happened, that fall happened as that order got turned upside down. Uh, Adam first spectacularly, I think, failed to exercise his spiritual leadership that he'd been given. And then Eve wrongly assumed that responsibility herself, again, inverting God's order. And going further by then listening to creation and obeying creation as it were rather than uh, ruling over it it was meant to say to be adam and eve ruling over creation uh, and within that partnership adam leading eve and if you think about it both in in genesis 3 both adam and eve are guilty of turning that order upside down well now paul argues argues for timothy to restore god's order in ephesus as he sets out roles and responsibilities that reflect God's creation order and in the next chapters directs how that leadership and order should be established. Well, I hope you're still with me. I'm sure there are lots of questions uh, that we might want to reflect on, perhaps uh, over coffee, in terms of what Paul is saying as well as what he isn't saying. But we do need to come to our last verse. And perhaps this is one of the more difficult ones in in the passage. But women will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, if we struggle with what Paul is saying here, I hope that we're clear about what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that women are saved by having kids. That would deny Paul's own message that we are saved by grace alone uh, through Jesus, through his saving death on the cross that we're about to remember as we take bread and wine. We're saved apart from anything or any work that we can offer 
uh, to God. Uh, Some have rightly argued the word women in verse 15 could be translated she, and so refers back to Eve, whose offspring would eventually produce the great serpent crusher, our saviour, Jesus Christ. That may be in Paul's mind, but the rest of the verse doesn't seem to fit uh, that interpretation very well if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. And it doesn't really fit, I don't think, the argument that Paul's been making through this passage so far. I think Paul is saying something more like this. So as we hold on to the gospel, this is what this letter is all about, uh, a holding on that will be revealed in obedience to God's word and teaching, including his instructions about how we order our lives individually and as a church, we do so, don't we, in the full assurance and expectation of God's mercy and salvation. Again, I think it's Paul encouraging us to trust God's good purposes for men and women in the church. As men love their wives, their families, their church families, sacrificially in the way that Jesus does. And here is women not only raise and nurture any of their own children, but also are investing in helping to raise and nurture others in the church family in faith and obedience to Christ. See, whether we're men or women, whether married, divorced, single, God through Paul is urging us to play our part, uh, to use our gifts, to take up our roles and responsibilities in daily life with God's salvation very much in view. As you draw to close, just a couple of final things to say. I guess much of our passage so far we've looked at largely in big picture. And we haven't really earthed Paul's teaching and some of the specifics of life here at Emmanuel. It is fair to point out that those who do hold uh, to the principles that I've tried to lay out so far have, have arrived at slightly different places in terms of how this works in practice. Um, I hope that even as we perhaps disagree a little bit on some of these things and how, they, how it looks in the day-to-day of church life, I hope we are clear that uh, uh, this, uh, this mandate that Paul lays out for us, this is God's mandate, is a good thing. We might disagree on on the issue of authoritative teaching, what that applies to. But I hope that we understand something of God's good purpose and order in this passage. And at a moment, Emmanuel, we, uh, I hope, have encouraged men and women to use those gifts that God has given, including their teaching gifts, in different areas of life uh, within the church. We haven't had women, I don't think, preaching on a Sunday, which is arguably perhaps the most clear way in which uh, authoritative teaching takes place in, us on, in the life of the church. But I'm aware of churches where people do take Paul's teaching very seriously uh, and have not discouraged women from preaching, uh, though exercising that gift under some form, of ma- some form of male leadership. Well, these words are uh, challenging, aren't they, to understand, and even more challenging, perhaps, to apply. But let's pray that as a church we would continue to be challenged and to change as God exposes our failures and perhaps our many inconsistencies. But just two things as we finish. Uh, If you're thinking about the difficulties and challenges about what we've been looking at, uh, perhaps asking your head, well, what about this or what about that? Then let me encourage you to keep asking your questions and not to sit in frustration and silence as we grapple with teaching. It is, let's admit it, very countercultural and challenging for us each in different ways. And finally, can I say, I'm sure there are some uh, here who are holding faithfully uh, to Scripture, 
have different convictions uh, than the ones that I've expressed. I can I just say how thankful I am uh, to those who are here who do struggle or even disagree with where we as a church are at or have landed uh, on this issue. For the fact that you are still coming uh, and are generous and sacrificial as you put to one side your views and understanding uh, for the unity of the church. That is something that is no uh, small thing. Well, let's keep praying that as a church we would uh, be engaged in God's worship as we gather week by week. Worship that focuses on Jesus and not on ourselves. That keeps us outward looking. Uh, and that's reflected in the way that we honour God and pray. And let's keep praying that God will continue to, to lead us and shape us. So that we are ready for that day when we receive our salvation. And not because that we, we've been the perfect church. But because Jesus is a glorious and great saviour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Father, we often sense that it challenges us in lots of different ways, and we pray that we would be humble, willing to submit ourselves to your teaching, to your words. But where we get it wrong, please be patient with us, please continue by your spirit to lead us and direct us individually, corporately, we do want to be a place where Jesus is honoured, where your good purposes are reflected and where men and women are able to meet you and become part of your church family. So please help us, forgive us, and keep transforming us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.